0: As they look to rebound on their road trip, it is Canucks Hour here on your home with the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks Insider, Thomas Drantz here with you. Drance, who of course, also does fantastic work covering the team at the Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. Dot C A. Uh, special guest coming up later on the show. One of your uh one of your old buddies from your Florida Panthers days. I'm n- I'm not sure if people knew this
1: transfer, but you used to work for the Florida Panthers. Did I? Have I ever mentioned has that? I, has that come up once or twice? <laughs> <laughs> Do I ever bring that up? Well, now now I get to add name dropping to my usual repertoire. Jason Bukla, longtime director of amateur scouting for the Florida Panthers. He served in that capacity uh when I worked with the club. Um he was he was great to work with from a media perspective. Let, let me just say that he always let me mic up prospects, including Elias Pettersson one day in Chicago, um, but always allowed a high level of access around the draft process. And he he was great from that from that point of view. Anyway, long history scouting for the Nashville Predators and the and the Florida Panthers, uh, a couple teams that have done pretty well at the draft table uh, traditionally, uh, Ontario based. But he's joined Sportsnet and wrote a fantastic piece. Uh, of insight into how the amateur scouting side works, you know, from from the old school hockey guys, which Bukla very much is uh that cut from that cloth. Anyway, really looking forward to having him on in the second segment. We'll discuss his new role, the the platform that he's built and that you'll begin to see rolled out at sportsnet.ca and also some thoughts from a professional on the Vancouver Canucks prospect pipeline. Well, and I'm also curious to hear not just his thoughts on the individual
0: players, but just you know, he was the direct, he was a scout, and then he became the director of amateur scouting. So, yep. how an organization goes about setting a philosophy for its scouting process and executing that, and really, you know, beyond just the nuts and bolts of actually getting out and scouting these players, how do you build a department that functions efficiently that's providing value to well, your club? Well, and
1: don't forget, he was the director of amateur scouting for the Panthers when they brought in uh, the PCS model developed at Canucks Army, right? And, and became a more heavily analytics based um, organization from a global evaluation perspective. So discussing that integration process too, he's he's probably uniquely positioned to discuss how it can be how data can inform the amateur process. Um, anyway, we'll we'll ask him all of those questions and more uh, when he comes on. Yeah, that's coming up at twelve thirty. You're not going to want to miss that one. But before we get
0: there, another day off in the uh, New York area. For the Vancouver Canucks, of course, coming off that dreadful, let's call it that, loss to the New Jersey Devils. The back in action against the New York Islanders tomorrow. And some new look lines from the Canucks and coach Bruce Boudreaux when they got on the ice at practice today. We'll dive into that in a second. But first, you know, this week opened, Drancer, with a wave of optimism I think from the team's perspective, certainly, and from a lot of fans, about where they stood. And from you. And, and from me. Yeah, that's fair. And, <laughs> and from the, in, where they stood <laughs> in the Western Conference playoff race. Sorry. No, no, no. It's Excuse true. me. It's 100% accurate. Yeah. And now, you know, you lose the game against the Devils, and... You look at the Outer Town scoreboard last night, and things did not go how the Canucks would have wanted them. Right. And it, it, it was like that. Night. It was like that trumpet sound effect. Like, wah, wah. Yeah. Edmonton, Anaheim, Vegas, Winnipeg, they all win. I mean, I was talking on Monday, right? Hey, they finally nosed ahead of the Anaheim Ducks in terms of point percentage. That's no longer the case, right? Edmonton's it's, using some of their games in hand to win. Vegas gets back on track with a win. It's hard to nose ahead of
1: a team that has a bill. <laughs> very true <laughs> they're always going to lose out in that competition foul the, joke, the, the foul nose joke. length competition but all of a sudden you know even without
0: playing last night it's been a poor few days in the playoff race uh for the vancouver canucks and it really kind of puts into focus the stakes of these next two games on the road trip right because going into it you know you say hey win three of four that's what you need to do. You take care of business on this trip. They still have the opportunity to do that, but it does feel like if they are not able to execute on that, if they're not able to pull out winning three of four and by, by winning the next two games, the final two games of this road trip, the, you know, yeah, we still have, what, 27 games left on the schedule, but if you're not able to pull that off, it's going to feel very, very, very damaging to their already pretty thin playoff chances at this point.
1: The problem is... That the Canucks face is that the NHL standings are sticky. It's very difficult to climb up the order. Uh, you know, you think about the fact that, as it stands right now, for example, right in the in the West, just like the West, forget the wild card race, but just in the West, the Canucks ranked 12th by point percentage. Right when Bruce Boudreau took over, they were 14th. They've played 650-point percentage hockey for 30 games. More than that, 30 30 games. Actually, is exactly 30 games now. 30 games. They've been an elite team in terms of results, and they've gained two standings positions by point percentage. Now, those are big standing positions. There's a big difference between being in the company of Seattle and Arizona and, and being in the company of Anaheim and Winnipeg. But the next rung up is really hard to climb up. And, and to sort of illustrate this, you know, I think it's useful to think about where, the, like, this week in a microcosm of, of the playoff race. Because it's not just this week. They're going to have to repeat this process seven more times or eight more times, basically, to make the playoffs. But this week, you face the Islanders and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Two tough opponents. I mean, those are not easy games for this Canucks team. And... You're trailing, currently, the uh, Dallas Stars, for example, by three points. And the Edmonton Oilers, who are ensconced currently in the second wildcard spot, by five. So, the Edmonton Oilers play the Montreal Canadiens and the Chicago Blackhawks this week, right? Very strong possibility that they come out of that with three or four points. So, if you don't come out of your two games this week, two tough games with three or four points, which is what you need just to stand pat assuming the Oilers can take care of business against Chicago and Montreal right? then you're then you're looking at what might be an eight or a, or a nine point deficit come next week. Um, meanwhile, if the Canucks win both of these games, it's very very probable that they'll still be facing a three or four point deficit come come Monday of next week, right? And, and this applies across the board. You've got Dallas and L.A. playing a game tonight. You just sort of root for against the three-point game. But then L.A. faces Buffalo and Columbus over the balance of this week, right? Like, you could well look up at the standings, and instead of being seven points up with the game in hand, the way the Kings are right now, it could be 11. It could be over by Monday. And, and yet the benefits of winning, like the leverage of a win right now, is far lower than the leverage of a loss. Right, this team can't afford losses, because you know as much as we look around the standings and as much as they had a bad day on the out of town scoreboard last night, realistically at this point in the year, like there's still enough runway left that you can't be thinking about help. You just need to help yourself. You just need to think about you know hitting 94 or 95 points, which at this point with the amount of games remaining, we're looking at something like 17 seven and three, right? 17 seven and three, um. That means that every time you win, it's like, that's one of 16. You need to keep it going. But every time you lose, that's one of seven. This team has five back-to-backs, right? You can't afford losses like the one that they had on Monday because you've given yourself no margin for error. This team has no margin for error. And this is where the schedule compresses, the standings compress, and it becomes very, very difficult to move. It's not frozen, but it's it's a steep, steep climb. Up from where the Canucks are at the moment, which is, you know, once again behind the Winnipeg Jets by point percentage, right? Um, You know, up past the teams that you need to catch and in fact pass if you're going to make the playoffs, which realistically at this point, I think we're looking at Dallas and Edmonton. Those are the teams that you'd have in your sights, for sure. Yeah. I know I
0: know there was a little uh, mini-boom of, hey, could they catch Vegas talk, but I don't see that happening. <laughs> I was not on board no. that trade. Vegas is going to be just fine, ultimately, at just least fine. in terms of making the playoffs, right? The, what they do once they get there is a whole different story. But the other thing, you Does know, you Vegas have
1: trouble in the playoffs? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Depends who they're playing. Um, <laughs> the other thing you mentioned there, right, just looking at the matchups and, okay, hey, some of these teams have some easy matchups coming up this week, but- the three point games are what just absolutely kill the teams in the chase at this point in the stand uh, of the schedule, right? When it's the two, two teams that you're chasing are playing against each other it's just such a nightmare scenario for you. And guess what? That happens a lot down the stretch, right? Like, Winnipeg and Anaheim and Edmonton and Dallas are all going to play games against each other. And they're going to play games against the other teams that you're kind of fringe chasing. So that's one of those things that it's always it's always more complicated than, hey, there are four points out even though the other team has two games in hand. That's pretty doable, but there's always these... Uh, kind of complicating, complicating circumstances that make that a much more difficult climb than it might look when you're just uh, checking out the NHL.com standings page. Yeah,
1: the, the well, and I mean, I often, I don't bet on hockey, of course, for for ethical reasons, professional uh, cur- a professional decorum decision that I've made long ago. But if there was one thing I wish I could hammer, it would be for the teams to draw when they're tied at the end of the second period. Like especially if they're teams for whom there's stakes. Like I wish I could just go hammer two teams to draw to get to overtime in that situation because they do it. They they do it because it's in everyone's interest. The NHL standings are created to incentivize a certain type of behavior. Uh, That certain type of behavior is very conservative. Late in regular season games, right? Teams don't go out to win them in the in the regular um, in regulation. They tend to prefer to just. Gentlemen's agreement, shake hands, take a point each, and then go play a coin flip for the for the extra one. That's a big risk that the Canucks face tonight. E- either one team really goes up early, um, you know, like like a three-nothing first period, in which case, you know, I think if you're a Canucks fan, that's like the most important thing to check with the game. If it's a lopsided game early, you've probably avoided the three point game. Um if it's close late, especially if it's Very
0: good tied chance. late.
1: It's going overtime. Yeah. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The
0: smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. Mentioned at the top of the show Canucks got on the ice. Uh, to practice today in the New York area and uh, a real kind of good news bad news situation I think for a lot of Canucks fans seeing these new look lines at practice and I'll just run through them here quickly Drancer so it's Miller with Pearson and Besser on the first line Pedersen with Garland and then on the other wing on that line it's Hoaglander and Philip DiGiuseppe rotating in that spot Horvat between Pud Colson and Alex Chason, and then of course, of course, The Rock, the foundation of this lineup, uh, Lamico, Highmore, and Mott, rounding out the forward group. We have heard from a lot of fans texting into the show, texting into other shows at the station here at 650, saying, why on earth is Alex Chason playing with Elias Pedersen? Now, I think that Alex Chason probably gets more derision from fans than he should, given you know the cost of acquiring him, which was nothing, what they're paying him. He's doing what he's what you can expect Alex Chason to do in the lineup, right. And it's not his fault that he's, you know, not the fleetest of foot that he has certain limitations as a player. he He's doing his job more or less. But having said that, I also understand the frustration of seeing, The guy who's supposed to be your franchise center, who's really turned things on as of late, who's really regained his form, playing on a line with, again, you know, a guy who's expected to be a bottom of the lineup player. So I think a lot of fans will be very happy to see, hey, Alex Jason no longer playing with Elias Pettersson, but then you look and it's, well, Niels Hoaglander... And Phil DiGiuseppe, who's just come up from the Abbotsford Canucks, and Bruce Boudreau said after practice he hasn't decided which of those two players is going to play tomorrow night. So it could be one kind of fringe
1: forward, moved off of Pedersen's line, only to be replaced by another fringe forward in Phil DiGiuseppe. It's a very, like, pantomime. Like, remember that Simpsons episode where it's the debate, where it's like, you know all these great services like yay but it's going to raise your yes. taxes boo right it's like uh
0: it's very much one of those or situations where he goes to buy uh, in one of the trios of horrors where he goes to buy like the monkey's paw from the and it's right. like oh, Perfect. Th-
1: the the frozen yogurt has potassium benzoate or whatever that's yeah. bad right so it's like so it's like we might finally see Philip DiGiuseppe. Giuseppe yay but Niels Hoglander might be scratched yep. no <laughs> so yeah it'll be interesting to see how the Canucks construct the lineup Phil DiGiuseppe, Giuseppe I thought should have made this team out of training camp to be totally honest with you Um, you know, I, I think he can really help the penalty kill. Uh, I think he's probably the most offensively talented of that class of, you know, speedy two way guys. Right. So, I mean, Mott, Mott's a really good against the grain goal scorer. Um, Matthew Highmore, I think is the best of the three in terms of actually playing with the puck. But in terms of how productive he's been at the NHL level and at the AHL level throughout his career, I actually think Phil DiGiuseppe is like a good match for what those guys bring, but I actually think he's got a little bit more touch. I would have liked to see him much earlier in the season. I think he can help this team. Yeah, I don't have any problem whatsoever with him getting in. I would like to see it with Alex
0: Chase on coming out of the lineup, right? And you just look how these lines end up then, right? With You still have DiGiuseppe playing with Pedersen and Garland. As you said, look, there is some offensive upside there, but that doesn't seem like the most natural fit to me now again there's no guarantee that di is going to be in and hoaglander is going to be out right right Perce boudreau said he's still considering if i had to bet just bet based on some of the things that boudreau's had to say about hoaglander's game recently i would bet on hoaglander being a scratch but that's just pure speculation it remains to be seen how that's going to go down a speculative wager, yes exactly the other element of this though is that bo horvat whose game has been in the spotlight a lot recently both for on the ice reasons and for those kind of captaincy culture carrying uh reasons that we talked about a little bit on the show yesterday Drance now he is kind of bumped down the lineup at least on paper and now he's the one playing with Alex Jason who a lot of fans were saying ah get this guy off of Elias Petterson's lineup now or line now it's one of your other kind of star forwards who's going to be playing with Alex on. And if I just look at this line, and these two kind of middle six lines as they're currently constructed, I would much rather see Hoaglander with Pedersen and Garland, keep DiGiuseppe in the lineup, and play him with Podkolzin and Horvat in place of Alex on. And at least then, with Phil Gi- DiGiuseppe, as you said, this kind of speedy two-way profile, Big body. Maybe you can use that Horvat line with Pod Colson and Giuseppe to play some of those matchup minutes. And you still have Pedersen playing with two offensively capable, dynamic players on his
1: group. Okay. Uh, how much do you think, though, the Canucks are concerned when they look across the Islanders uh, roster, their probable roster for tomorrow, and you see a bunch of monster sized players, right? You see Brock uh, Nelson. You see Anders Lee. You see I mean, Clutterbuck's not tall, but Clutterbuck's a heavy player. Casey Zizekas, uh, you see Matt Martin. I mean, you see a bunch of big forwards, and then also Beauvillier and Barzell. Uh, Barzel, excuse me. Um, so, you know, I wonder how much that sort of goes into it, right? Do you need chase-ons, or do you feel you need chase-ons size, just as, as something of a counterweight against a team that's going to be significantly larger than you are? Is is Chase going to be that much of a counterweight, though? Realistically, right? No, like, I, you know I don't what I think mean? so. But I think yeah. that's how teams think sometimes, especially against an opponent that has this much beef. On the Canucks in terms of a, an edge. And that has that reputation as playing that kind of hard,
0: physical game like the New York Islanders do.
1: Right. Do you, do you, do you think it might be a low-scoring game? I don't know how the Canucks think they might be in a low-scoring game, but do you no. think it's going to be a low-scoring game and maybe you want chase on for PP2 just because, you know, it's useful to have a backboard down there, especially now that the Islanders no longer play at Barclays Arena. Um, I, I mean, those would be sort of the things I'd expect to to go into that consideration set. And um I you know I understand it even if I think ultimately this team's always going to be at its best maximizing its speed and skill particularly because you know I I've I've got this new theory basically that the determinative thing in in understanding the Canucks' chances are to look at the speed of the other team's back end are they going to be able to counter the Canucks forecheck or not and if they're if they are I think the Canucks gets completely stuck like, I just think that what if their, if their forecheck doesn't feed their offense, I don't think they can break out cleanly enough, consistently enough to win games. But if their forecheck plays, I think they can win. And I think they can beat almost anybody who can't break it out against them because of how efficient they are uh, at converting the opportunities they get. So I look at this Islanders' blue line, and I see a blue line that can move the puck, and I think that's going to spell trouble for the Canucks. Uh, the other thing to watch— is while the results have remained really good of late, especially the last seven, they've won five of them, the defensive play has fallen off. And I don't think you need stats to tell you that. You watched the game against Toronto. You saw what that looked like. You watched the game against San Jose. You saw what that looked like. You saw the game against the New York Rangers. You saw what that looked like. Those were wins, but those were concerning defensive efforts across the board. And even in the player's own formulation like i remember i thought they played really well against the maple leafs and then i asked jt miller about it and he was like that was not a fun game like that that was pond hockey i don't like that we were not in control of that game so i liked it more than jt miller did but once it becomes this trend of just like every game this team is playing in it's five alarm scoring chances and it becomes like a coin flip on whether or not they anaheim or um they pull an anaheim or a Excuse me, a, um, New Jersey, New Jersey, and just sort of light you up, or or if it's more like the Calgary Flames game, and you stop the Mangiapane breakaway, and you stop the Rasmus Anderson shot, even though you don't have a, a stick, or Demko does anyway, and then and then you're off to the races potentially. So this Islanders team, I think, poses some trouble for the Canucks, particularly because their back end can move um, and can move the puck really well. I, I think again, this this game will fundamentally come down to this: Can the Canucks? get to the islanders uh, with their forecheck. If they can, I think they I think they'll win. If they can't, I, I don't think they will. And then the other thing I'm watching for is can this team clean up their defensive game? Win or lose, win or lose, if they if they continue to surrender scoring chances against the way they have the last seven or eight games, um, you know, it, no, nothing else really matters. Like big picture, you cannot be surrendering chances like this or even Thatcher Demko eventually is not going to be able to withstand it. And as much as they, you know, they had such a dreadful start to the season, there's been
0: bright spots since then. They're not necessarily in one of those bright spots right now are the Islanders, but they are still like they live up to the low event reputation that they have earned right under Barry Trotz. So if you are, you know, this should theoretically be a... I don't want to say an easy matchup by any stretch, but if you're looking for a matchup where you can kind of get away from that pond hockey style that we've seen from the Canucks recently and actually, okay, play more of a controlled game, maybe in both directions. Maybe you're not generating as much either, but you're at least limiting what the other team is generating. Theoretically, this should be a favorable matchup against the Islanders to try to get that kind of result. Because again, yeah, they, the defensive results haven't been there for them this year, but it has not been because they've gone all out on offense. They still struggle to generate scoring chances, generate shots, and all of that. So. Yeah.
1: Well, although again, I think the Islanders are sneaky, sneakily a tough matchup for Vancouver because of how Pellick, pulock yeah. Mayfield, and Dobson can move the puck like that. That to me is when we've seen this Canucks team win convincingly. It's been when I, when I've seen them win games where I also feel like they beat their opponent. It's because their forecheck worked it's because their forecheck got to their opponent. And when that doesn't happen, I just don't think this team has enough enough two-way intelligence to find the plan B consistently. And so that, to me, is going to be determinative, not just against the Islanders, but also against a Maple Leafs team that, by the way is not as good, breaking out the puck, is not as good at playing track meet type hockey this season as they have been in previous years. So that's almost a matchup I like better for Vancouver than the Islanders game, even though the Leafs are a significantly better team. Well, and again, to bring it back to the lineup changes,
0: you know, based on that kind of metric, do you have, can you counteract the, the other team's speed on defense? That's another argument for me in favor of, okay, hey, I, I love bringing Phil Giuseppe in, I'd rather be Alex Chason sitting down then. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're worried about getting making sure your forecheck is effective against a mobile defense for the other team, yeah, I'm I not sure that. Alex on moves the needle for no, you I in think that you're right. I think so you're so right. We'll see the what point. happens. We'll see what develops tomorrow, what lineup Bruce Boudreaux ends up going with when they do play the Islanders. More on that game uh, on the show tomorrow. But as mentioned earlier, special guest coming up on the program, Jason Bukla, former director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers and now a Sportsnet Contributor, hear from him about the Canucks prospect pool, how to build a scouting department, and a whole lot more. That's coming up next. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you. Uh, we will be joined in just a minute or so by Jason Bukla, former director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers, and now a Sportsnet contributor. Really looking forward to that conversation. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery avenue machinery.ca uh by the way coming up a little later on sportsnet 650 on canuck central with dan riccio and satyar shah uh a pretty high profile player there's been a bit of discussion about this player in the market i would say jt miller is going to be on the program with uh sat and reach so knowing jt miller knowing uh what the conversation has been like in this market
1: Recently, Drancer, I think people are going to want to tune in to hear what uh, what Miller has to say to those guys. No question. JT Miller is always an entertaining conversation. Always. 100% of the time. And he talks about hockey with a certain type of, uh, you know, Marauder's cadence that I can't help but find charming. So, I highly recommend everyone tune in at 405. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one, especially uh, in light
0: of one of the thoughts in 32 thoughts from Elliot Friedman this week which was repeating something he's mentioned before, but uh, Canucks players sick, I believe was the word that Elliot Friedman used. They are sick of hearing their names. Uh, in trade rumors. And of course, Miller has been front and center in that regard. So curious to hear if that topic gets broached at all when he sits down to chat or when he calls in to chat uh, with reach and sat a little bit later on. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber in Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Lumber. Dot com. Terry from Mission, looking ahead to the game tomorrow night, says the Canucks were embarrassed last game against the New York Islanders. There was zero chance that they let that happen again. You'd certainly like to think so, Terry. You would certainly like to think so. But there's also a big gap. You know, it's one thing not to get embarrassed. It's another thing to come away with the two points, right? And, like, not getting embarrassed is the absolute bare minimum that this team should be looking to be accomplished, but what they actually need to do, if they want to make good <laughs> on this, is not just avoid embarrassment and lose three two. You got to find a way to actually win that game. And, and a are, lot of them. These are very to win different a, tasks. A
1: big string of games. Yes. So it goes more a, than one. Are
0: we? Do we have books? Yeah, we got. Uh, sounds like we got Jason Buchla on go. the line. So as mentioned, former director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers and now a Sportsnet contributor, a member of the Sportsnet family jason first thanks very much for uh, for joining us today how are you
2: doing fantastic anytime i can do something for grant sir i mean uh, I'll, I'll i'll stop everything <laughs> in my day to make sure that i'm available for him <laughs> well fantastic. we appreciate it bud
1: <laughs> and welcome to the sports Sport. net well welcome to the team
2: my friend it's
1: nice to work with yeah, you I, again
2: yeah, absolutely absolutely grants it's uh as you know, it was, it's always been fun to be around you, and uh, we've shared some laughs and some uh, healthy arguments and discussions, so it's, uh, it's all good. <laughs>
0: I, I can relate. Uh, so, <laughs> but before we get into the, the meat of the interview, Jason, I just uh, first of all, tell us about your new role at Sportsnet and a little bit about what we can expect to see from you. I know your first article is up now on Sportsnet.ca. Everyone should go and check it out. I found it really interesting. What can we expect to, to see from you down the road as well?
2: Well, I think it's going to uh, really encompass a lot of different uh, um, areas of of the platforms that Sportsnet offers. So obviously, you know, contributing on the radio side, where I can hopefully paint the picture of uh, prospects and players um, for your listeners. But on the uh, on the .ca side, I'll be contributing articles on uh, you know NHL quality talent, uh, prospect pools, uh, teams and pipelines. Obviously, a little bit of a lean on the Canadian side since that's where we are um, with the Canadian teams. Um, And then, you know, after the trade deadline leading into the, the amateur draft and preparation for that and and what, uh, what people can look out for in terms of, you know, targets and and what teams habits might be just any type of extra information that'll keep everybody engaged and then into free agency. So, the visual on the uh, on the .ca side and, and on the TV side is also including uh, evaluation uh, cards, if you will, almost in a hockey card type style, and you know real plain uh, plain scope of easy to read, easy to understand, really thorough, and um, basically taking a lot of what uh, Drant saw me do in Florida over the years, that uh, experience uh, of building. Um, uh, database of information on players, pro and amateur. And, uh, and now people are going to be able to see how that all comes together.
1: Well, and I, I want to rewind the clock here a little bit, Jason, and just talk about your career a bit, because you've had a fascinating route through the game. You've seen a ton of changes over the years. And and you began in the NHL after you were, you were with the, with the Sioux Greyhounds, but you joined the Nashville Predators organization um, as an area scout. What, uh, you've been part of a club that really needed to down in Nashville, right? That really needed to get talent in through the amateur draft, right? And and you were part of that draft table, um, you know, the the Ryan Ellis and and then Matthias Ekholm in the 4th draft in in 09. Some of what Nashville ended up accomplishing over the course of the past decade was was accomplished with you at the table. What were the keys to some of Nashville's in-house success that you observed during your time there?
2: Well, first of all, um, I, I think it always starts with your leadership and the stability at the top of the organization. So David Poyle, um, as, as everybody knows has been in Nashville since the, the franchise came into the league. Um, David really relies heavily on his staff. Um, he, he produces or he projects a, a vision and uh, and a need and a want. And it's, it's, it's got a lot of layers to it because it's not just like how we're going to draft and build our organization. We want to have an identity, obviously, but also back then, especially, it was how can we fit it into our own in-house budget? So as as the, the NHL started to evolve in a salary cap type of uh, a world that we live in today and we're more familiar with, um, a lot of what we did there was um, predicated on the fact that, you know, this is how much we have to spend. This is how important it is for us to hit on as many players as possible. We need them all to come through Milwaukee and eventually arrive in Nashville. And their leadership group there has done a fantastic job for a long time. Jeff Kelty was the director of scouting and now he's the assistant GM. Um, they've um, They've had some synergy there. They've had some continuity. They've had very little turnover. And I was I trained under some very very special people there, and and then obviously landed in Florida after that.
1: Yeah, and so you land in Florida as the director of amateur scouting, and the team is in an aggressive, an aggressive rebuild, right? I mean, I think you, uh, you, you sort of missed the first off season where where the the good Branson draft, but thereafter, um, you know, lots of high picks, lots of draft picks in general. Um, as you watch that Buzz Saw team today, and obviously you no longer work for the club, uh, nor do I. But as you watch that club today, knowing that there were so many players uh, that you were part of the the scouting process that are now part of that nucleus, um, do you feel a sense of pride?
2: Oh, I'm really happy for the entire organization. I'm happy for the people that are still there that uh, that I worked with for a lot of years. Let's not forget that before I arrived, Scott, Luce and Erin Janelle were running the amateur side and, and you know really did a heck of a job under some trying circumstances. So again, my progression came under them in Florida originally before you know, as you know jance we, we went through several changes and um, for us to be able to build that core that we built with with Dale mostly at the head of the table, um, but for us to build it with a lot of moving parts and behind the scenes, I take especially i take even more pride in that because there were enough distractions that we could have maybe missed more often than we missed and Uh, you know, our staff did a heck of a job of um, scouring every arena around the world. And on a lean budget, I must add, and and not the biggest staff, but uh, just goes to show that you get quality people and you let them do their job, um, they will produce uh, quality talent. And uh, if they're not doing the job, they're not going to be there any longer. But yeah, I'm proud. I'm proud of that franchise. I'm proud of where it's going. I hope that they have uh, every level of success moving forward. But you look at guys like Barkov and Weger and Ekblad and uh, Spencer Knights on his way, potentially, I guess that's a talking point. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I mean, you, you, when you put in that kind of work, I was averaging about 175 nights a, a, a year on the road by the time I was leaving there. And when you put in that kind of work, obviously you want to see it come to fruition or else you'd be uh, frustrated by the process. So I'm proud. I'm proud of everybody there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, y- you're happy for the Panthers organization as our listeners will tell you, I am. Um, the, uh, the, one of the changes that went, um, that you experienced or have, have lived through within the industry is the sort of advent and ultimate incorporation of hockey analytics into various hockey processes, uh, it, within hockey operations departments, whether it's amateur scouting, whether it's player development, everyone's using data differently now. Um, in particular, in Florida, um, you know, out of out of Vancouver, there was a a group of intelligent people who who developed a, a model at Canucks Army, a local blog that ended up joining the organization and, and having some impact and interaction with you and your staff. Um, what what do you see as some of the challenges in your experience incorporating data, and and how can it enhance a club's talent identification process?
2: Well. It's, it's a, a massive part of, of collecting as much information on players worldwide at every level um, that you can have in your organization. It's a, it's a, it's a huge piece. Uh, we were fortunate, um, as you've noted, that um, you know, Josh Weisbrock and, um, and Cam Lawrence, right out of your backyard there, came to us in Florida, and these are two brilliant minds, as you, as you said, um, and they were able to present to us at different stages of the year trends and models and, uh, you know, give you a different look at, uh, at things. And um, I'm 51 years old right now, and the amount of change that's gone on in the league in my 16 years at the NHL, and then, of course, dating myself before that, a major junior process who also use analytics now, um, it's just imperative. Like, you have to be able to get as much information on players as possible. It's a tool. And uh, it's part of the process. Every upper level manager and team president and potentially owner is going to ask you to use it a certain way. Um, Cam and I developed a very strong relationship by the end there. And, uh, um, hey, it had some hurdles and it had some challenges. He was right in his mind um, more often than I thought and vice versa. Right. But that's just part of scouting anyways. That's part of the process. It was always respectful. And uh, any team that's not utilizing it in today's day and age, especially in a salary cap slash pandemic, um, (laughs) is uh, is way behind.
0: In conversation with Jason Buchla, former director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers and now a Sportsnet contributor as well. And, and, you know, just talking about that process of – integrating data and analytics into your decisions as an organization and as scouts. And it does seem like, you know, okay, virtually every team in the NHL now will employ people in analytics, but maybe other teams are better at, you know, getting more return on that investment. And just how how important is it for whether it's the GM or the president to really kind of set that culture where, you know, you're not just checking a box by having somebody work in analytics. You're you're making sure that there is that productive working relationship between all parts of the front office.
2: Well, I mean, that statement that you just made there really has a lot of kind of moving parts to it. So the first one is that the culture and the direction that your organization is going to enter into, especially if you make a change, um, the the conversation with the staff is going to come from the top, and it's going to say this is this is how we envision working uh, as a group. This is uh, this is our strategy. This is where we're going to gather information, and we're going to use all these fantastic people to do it. And by the way, you're all going to have a voice. Some people might get their guard up about that, and if they do, they're not right for the organization moving forward. It's just as simple as that. You can't you can't mess around with that because especially if we're going through a culture change. I mean, it's going to start in the back. It's going to start in the boardroom, that culture, and it's going to trickle down from there. Um, but I got to say this as well. I would probably get about two or 3,000, no lie, uh, emails or requests every year for jobs in the scouting industry from people all over, around the world. You know, they, Everybody thought they, they could be a hockey scout. Every team in the NHL has a different view on analytics, and I think most of them are using a different type of uh, strategy or implementing something. So what Cam and Josh did with us, is going to be different than, you know, what the guys in Toronto are doing. It's You have to wean out the people just like you have to wean out a scout. You have to get the best analytics team you possibly can, and you have to trust that process with them, because otherwise um, it just becomes like everything else. It's, it's just a, a slow bleed, and, and you're chasing it.
0: So we're talking about the, the integration of data and some of the, the changes that you've seen in your career, Jason. But I also want to ask you about one of those kind of very old school elements of scouting, which is trying to evaluate character. Because we also hear NHL teams consistently emphasize the need to be drafting the right kind of people. You know, you have to have good players and excellent talent, obviously, but there also is still this emphasis on on drafting character. What's that evaluation process like from a scouting perspective of trying to make sure the character is a fit for a player as well?
2: I would say that the character side of it has is, is gotten to be a little bit more um, uh, difficult and at times misleading over the years. And the reason I say that is because social media and all these entities that are out there, they can really mislead anybody on an, any given day. Um, you know, a kid could be, could be getting interviewed. Uh, you know, he might have uh, did a presentation. He might have broke up with his girlfriend and she's posted it on social media a certain way. Like there's so many moving parts in today's society. So what we really have to do is, is rely on your area scouts to get to know the players as best as possible outside the lines and then dive a little bit deeper inside the lines. And what I mean by that is you know, there's always a saying in, in, in sport and in hockey anyways, that if you want to get the truth, go talk to the trainer. You know, so,
0: um,
2: <laughs> you know, because the coach is going to tell you what you want to hear, maybe or not. And, um, and but the trainer is going to give you the real goods. It takes work. Um, and, and then when you get to, to see a kid face to face, and this is where we, I really feel we did a great job of this in Florida. Dale uh, especially was was a master at making a kid who walks into a room who may never have had a job interview before, um, you know, made him feel comfortable. It made him feel like he was having dinner in his own dining room, if you will. And I think that the best way to get the most out of a character analysis one-on-one, uh, speaking to a kid, is by making him feel as comfortable as possible, and and then they'll they'll give you what you want that way in terms of just being themselves. Now, having said all of that. You know, then you got between the lines character, and that's a whole different uh, discussion. Because you know, between the whistles, how a kid uh, a kid gets pulled off on the power plate, thinks he should be out there, is he looking over his shoulder, giving the coach a dirty eye, stuff like that. That analytics won't be able to tell you, but you have to be in the rink to see those types of things. Um, so I, I'm trying to draw a picture for you there. It's it's got a lot more moving parts today than it ever has in the past, and uh, the teams that are best at it. are uh, are reaping the the rewards.
1: So Jason, I want to pivot and ask you a little bit about the market we're in and and Vancouver. And I I know you're uh, settling into the new job, stretching your legs as it were, but I'm sure you've, no, I'm not sure. I know knowing, knowing the work that you've put into your platform, to developing your platform and the amount of work you've done to watch all levels of hockey, not just through that process, but in your former role, as the Director of Amateur Scouting with the Panthers, I know you have a really good finger on the pulse of, of various prospect pipelines and systems around the NHL. And I, I want to ask you, in general, we've there's been a lot of talk in this market about, you know, in addition to the fact that the Canucks are outside the playoff picture looking in at the moment um, and don't have cap space, they also... Don't seem to have a ton of really high-end prospects coming. What's your like quick health assessment of where this club's prospect system stands at the moment?
2: Um, the the system is average. Um, you know, I I I would I can't. I'm not trying to discredit anybody that's uh, come through and did the work in the past because I know how hard that is. But right now, it's average. I don't see a lot of um, A-grade prospects in the pipeline. Um, you know, there's some guys that are taking a little bit longer in their development curve to potentially arrive, and I say potentially because you know they're they're still not arrived. they still have not arrived at the NHL level. You've had cup of tea guys, you know, uh, Mike DiPietro comes up in uh, an emergency situation a few years ago. He's had a few cups of tea here at the, at the NHL level, but you know he's proving to be an American League goalie. Is he an NHL goalie? You know, to be determined. Um, you know, you got the the Yermo kid who's playing in Finland, big strong defenseman, 2 way guy moves pretty well, struggled his first year at the pro level over there, putting up some secondary scoring numbers this year he's a long curve guy as well Um, you know, in the college ranks, I know that uh, the the Aiden McDonough kid at Northeastern got a lot of love from from people out on the left coast here in Canada, Um, uh, you know his skating um, and off the puck play is going to have a long ways to go still to be considered an NHL prospect, but his goal of scoring has been a lead at the college level. Um, but college kids who have scored at a high level are scattered all over the world playing at all levels of hockey. It's a large leap and there's some work to be done there. Um, you know, the Klimovich kid uh, obviously came out of the scene at the, uh, at the under 18s, you know, the, the Belarusian. Yep. Um, uh, and you know, he's actually performed Relatively well in Abbotsford. You got to consider his curve and where he was a year ago compared to where he is right now. I have hope for him. I think that his compete and some of the things he does, um, you know, are going to translate. And and for me, he's arguably their most skilled guy down there already um, in terms of being a a true NHL young prospect. So, um, you know what? There's there's a few other guys in there. I like Rathbone. Um, You know, I. I saw that he suffered a, a you know, well, look gruesome. I saw the tape on it when he, he was recently injured, but he was, he was running a hot hand leading into that time. Uh, I believe he got player of the week at the American Hockey mm-hmm. League level, if I'm not mistaken. So, yep. But we're talking about guys here, are some kids that, if you look at Rathwin, he's a 2017 draft, you know, right. and we're, we're starting to get into 2022. So there's a layer in there that has been lapped if you will, if that makes sense. Like, you, you're starting to lap some layers, and that's that's an area of concern, because, um, yes, they've graduated a few guys to the NHL roster, Pat Colson, but where's the underbelly? Where's it coming from? When's it going to arrive? Um, there's room for concern, to be sure.
1: Well, and so, you know, deadline day, for example, Jason Buchla, in your, in your role as a director of amateur scouting, you, you you'd be in the room, because... The GM might need a quick take right on XYZ prospect that's being offered um, as part of a package or or what have you, right? Um, uh-huh. If you were in that position now, right? The Canucks are buying from 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 your team in a, in a hypothetical world. Um, like, do they have the chips to compete? at the trade table, say, say this season in a, in a different world where the season had gone differently and the Canucks, were looking to buy, do they even have the trade chips to compete with, you know, some of the teams around them in the standings, whether it's a Calgary or a, or a Vegas or a, a team like the LA Kings.
2: Well, if you're calling, you know, again, if you're, if you're talking about straight up prospects as a trade chip and, you know, are those kids going to be NHL players? The short answer is no. Um, You know, they don't have enough of that to go around. So, um, there's going to be some. There's going to be other players at that table that are. They have a better hand right now. Yeah. So if they really want something, um, they're going to be able to outbid the Canucks in that scenario. Um, and that's that's where, as a uh, in my role, if if asked in my role, that's where I have to present to our upper management, ownership, whatever. That you know, I think we have to sit on this hand, and and we're going to maybe have to move a roster player NHL. We're going to have to look at it differently because. A year from now, we'll be chasing the same scenario. And then before you know it, you're chasing it again after that. And all the while, you're drafting in the muddy middle. And really, the depth of your group isn't, isn't improving in the process. So it's a dicey spot to be in. Jason,
0: we really appreciate the insight. Uh, fantastic work. Can't wait to see what else you do at Sportsnet.ca and across all the platforms here at Sportsnet. And uh, hopefully, we will be checking in with you again ahead of the trade deadline to, to hear more of your thoughts. Thank you.
2: Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. All
1: the best, Books. Thanks for joining us.
0: See you again, That is Jason Bukula, former director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers, and now a Sportsnet contributor. Some really interesting thoughts there, kind of from a high-level perspective of how a front office in general and an amateur scouting department specifically operates, and then also on the the Canucks prospect pool specifically. And, you know, I, we'll, have, uh, we'll have Bukula back on the station on this show, I'm sure, as well at some point down the road. But... One of the things I'm most curious about is just, other than the obvious of, hey, hit all, hit hit more of your draft picks. Like, when you're in that position, if he was the director of amateur scouting for the Canucks, what would be the kind of roadmap to improving
1: the pipeline here? Yeah. Because as he said, it's a difficult position to be in for the team. It, it is, for sure. And, you know, I, I think it's going to require some patience. There's no question this team needs to be building. And, you know, for me, the key takeaway there is, in your role as amateur scouting director, if the Canucks were trying to buy... With their prospect pool as it stands, what would your advice be? The advice would be we're gonna have to look at their roster (laughs) players. Like, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the work that this franchise has to do to get value back in the organization to the point where they have avenues to improve.
0: We will be back tomorrow. It's another game day tomorrow for the Vancouver Canucks against the New York Islanders. We'll break that down. Uh, going into that game against the Islanders. The People Show, Bik Nazar, Randy Bjanda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.